Hello, and welcome to the Social Protection Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sharp. Today, we're kicking off a three-part series on social protection and gender-based violence. In today's episode, we're looking at what we know about the impact of social protection on violence against women and children. We'll unpack some of the complex ways that programs can alleviate economic stress and challenge the social norms that underpin violence and the roles that cash transfers and complementary interventions can play. And stay tuned for quick wins this week when our guest will talk about how to engage men in these critical conversations about gender norms and roles. This series has been produced by socialprotection.org and the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade with support from the UK Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office and UNICEF. With me for our episode today, I have Anna Maria Buller, Associate Professor in Social Sciences and Director of the Gender, Violence and Health Centre at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, Lusajo Kajula, Principal Investigator at UNICEF Office of Research, Innocenti, and Amber Peterman, who is Research Associate Professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Amber and Anna Maria are both part of the Cash Transfer and Intimate Partner Violence Research Collaborative, and Lusajo and Amber are also affiliates of the Transfer Project, which is a multi-country cash transfer research initiative in Africa. Welcome, Anna, Lusajo, and Amber. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you, Joanne. Thanks. Great to be here. Let me start with you, Amber. I want to ask you something really fundamental, which is what do we understand about what underpins or causes intimate partner violence or gender-based violence? And therefore, what do violence prevention programs broadly seek to address? Great question to start out with. And let me actually start with the definition of what we understand by intimate partner violence or IPV, since the audience might not be familiar with all the scope of what we're talking about today. So IPV is the most common form of violence against women globally. It includes everything from physical, sexual, economic, or emotional abuse by a current or a former spouse or even a dating partner. So the main sort of framework that global health or public health uses to understand the causes of IPV is the socio-ecological framework. So according to this socio-ecological model, there are really multiple interacting factors at different levels. So for example, at the community level, norms accepting violence against women are an important factor increasing violence risk or decreasing violence risk. And so many prevention programs seek to shift these norms. At the individual or interpersonal level, things like poor mental health, alcohol abuse, low levels of women's social and economic support have been linked to violence risk. So likewise, these are sort of entry points for prevention programming. So with this scope of different forms of gender-based violence is, is pretty wide, but they often share common risk factors and they co-occur in families and communities. So for example, in social protection research and programming, the common forms we see mentioned beyond IPV are things like violence against children. Here, we're mostly talking about violent discipline inside the home, early forced and child marriage among girls specifically, and some non-partner domestic violence. So violence perpetrated by other family members, including mothers or fathers-in-law. So since economic factors underlie many of these types of violence, it's really relevant for social protection programming, which primarily focuses on poverty, as we know, to be talking more about and better understanding the links between these two issues. 
Thank you. That's a really great introduction and framework to start us off. Anna Maria, can you talk a little bit about what happens when cash transfers are brought into households and relationships, and I guess even into communities, how they can affect the dynamics that Amber's just outlined that may lead to violence? Sure. So let me go back to a review we conducted back in 2018. That review aimed to sort of summarise evidence on programme theory on the pathways through which cash transfers can impact IPB. And when reviewing the literature and the evidence, we found three distinct pathways. The first one is through economic security and emotional well-being. So this pathway mainly operates through a kind of pure income effect of cash into the household, whereby cash increases financial standing and reduces poverty-related stress, leading to improved emotional well-being. This reduces violence in the household. The second of these pathways is what we call the intra-household conflict pathway. So something we, we saw again and again in different contexts and over different regions, and we continue seeing is how a lot of the conflict in the couples is related to the arguments caused by day-to-day negotiations over tight budgets and daily spending. And we found that having the cash available could reduce this conflict and directly reduce IPV. We also found or hypothesized, though, that if money from the cash transfers wasn't spent for things needed in the household and rather spent on things such as alcohol or tobacco, this could increase the intra-household conflict. So there's a potential avenue for increase in, in IPV. And then we have the third pathway, which we call the women's empowerment pathway, Uh, through which we found that cash transfers could increase or have a role in increasing women's bargaining power, strengthening her self-worth and potentially increasing her perceived value to the household through cash and complementary programming, in particular those programs that target women. And, And in this pathway, what we found is that the effects on IPV were mediated by the potential reaction of the man to this new balance of power in the household that if men were uncomfortable, this could generate a backlash. I have to say that when we conducted the review, we hypothesized this pathway. And then when we looked into the evidence, we found very little evidence on the pathways increasing IPV. Thank you. One of the things you've both touched on is this idea of vulnerability. And of course, this is a core concept in social protection. So I'm interested in exploring a little bit more about how that vulnerability plays out when it comes to people being at risk of violence and indeed how social protection might interact with some of, for some of those other groups. So, Lusadjo, coming to you, you've conducted research that's looking at how social protection programs have worked to mitigate violence against children and young people, adolescents. Can you tell us from your research, in what ways do you see these groups as being particularly vulnerable and What has the impact of social protection programs been on them? Thank you, John. In in Africa, the culture itself looks down on women and children, especially with less decision-making power. And the fact when they are low uh, socioeconomic status, they have even less decision-making power. However, the social uh, protection programs do give them now the power in terms of what can they do with the funds. 
For four years, we conducted a study with adolescents in two regions in southern highlands of Tanzania from four districts. And these adolescents, 14 to 19, were trained in financial literacy, in gender, violence, social, sexual reproductive health. And we followed them for four years. We were also following up on the clinics, including the uptakes of testing for HIV and STIs. So for the youth, we are taking on a 10-week training for all the four topics. And then after the 10th week, they were given a grant with $80, which were given in half, uh, $40. And after a few weeks, they would get the rest of the $40. But then they had to decide if they want to do business or if they want to use it for schooling for those who were in school, because our study included youth who were in school or out of school. So for those who were out of school, they engage in different forms of not only business, some were into livestock keeping, actually some conducted businesses, and those in school would decide whether to buy school material, some wanted to learn vocational training, and then every year we would assess them, conduct surveys and qualitative interviews to see the improvement. So for girls, in some cases with low socioeconomic status, some girls would engage in sexual, you know, transfer with uh, either promise of cash or with cash, or sometimes just promises to get a better life. Uh, So when they engaged in cash transfer program, they were trained to and also got a grant to start program, to start any business, but also they were trained in financial literacy, which actually more girls could then stay in school, uh, reduce the probability of being pregnant. For the boys, some of them, you know, instead of going to school, they'd work in farms or sometimes in, for example, in one district in Mofindi, go to wood cutting factories so that they can get the extra cash. So being in a social protection programs can protect them, actually help protect them to stay longer in schools. Also in terms of gender, the boys, if they have more gender equitable attitudes that the world we wish for, you know, for adult male to have more gender equitable attitudes and therefore be less violent to their wives and children. Thank you, Lusaja. And that's an intervention that's overlaid on Tanzania's National Social Protection Program, the Productive Safety Net. So it's a great example of how social protection schemes offer the opportunities for multidimensional and complementary programming. We'll come back to that theme in a minute. So, Amber, as we've discussed, a key hypothesis about why social protection programs might reduce violence in general is because they reduce household financial stress. And indeed, there seems to be fairly good evidence of this occurring in different places. Does that mean that other interventions that seek to increase household and women's income, like livelihoods or microcredit programs, have the same effect That's a great question. So exactly as you mentioned, the evidence for economic strengthening and that pathway is quite strong in the case of cash or food and voucher programs, reducing not only financial stress, but I think also operating via reductions in negative coping strategies the household might employ, 
potential improvements of mental health in the household, et cetera. And I think this gives us a good view on the relationship between poverty and violence more generally. But I also think we can't necessarily assume that all economic empowerment interventions will be equally impactful when it comes to violence reduction. So one reason I'm a bit hesitant about microfinance, as you mentioned, is that numerous reviews of the literature generally show that weak and limited impacts on women's economic standing and agency generally, and that programming is sort of less well-suited for the ultra-poor. So programs like microfinance have take-up challenges. Not all women might want to take a loan or have collateral to be eligible to take a loan. They might also actually face additional financial stress if the interest rates are high or if they have trouble re making loan repayments. So there's a lot of these design elements that sort of have to be in place for microfinance to be gender informed and make programming more attractive and effective for women. On the other hand, we are currently working on a mixed method review of interventions to promote women's assets. So these include interventions like property rights, strengthening um, transfer of productive assets and land rights, et cetera. So while it's still in progress of the 14 rigorous empirical studies we found, about two-thirds of them show reductions in violence against women. So circling back to social protection, I think a real question for social protection programming is that we see these really strong and promising impacts in the short term while the programs are running, but we sort of wonder, are these sustainable or can they last over time, including when the transfers stop? So building on that then, as Lusajo's example outlined, the other feature of large-scale cash transfer programs is they can potentially provide a bit of a scaffolding for the delivery of other kinds of complementary cash plus interventions. Anna Maria, I'd just be interested to have you talk us through what the impact of the plus in cash plus approaches seems to be in this space. We have not very many studies that can actually, or that looked at isolating the impact of the cash transfer alone versus the cash transfer plus a complementary intervention or the complementary intervention alone. Um, as Amber mentioned, a critique is that cash transfers cannot be forever. And the argument that at the base of this critique is that what they are doing is reducing the financial stress that we were discussing as a main mechanism of impact, but what they are not doing is transforming those gender norms at the base of IPB, or which we know are one of the main drivers of IPB. So they are not gender transformative. They are not changing or challenging the status quo, just the cash. And this is where their complementary programming and this third pathway that I mentioned at the beginning, the empowerment pathway, seems to become more relevant and important because it's through women's empowerment that we can achieve these shifts in power dynamics and some gender transformation in the household or communities that might allow for that impact to sort of sustain over time. And something we've been quite interested in the collaborative to look at is what's the role of group-based modalities or that like implementing this plus programming but through groups rather than individually. We have some, found some evidence from a mixed method study in Ethiopia looking at the government of Ethiopia cash for work program and we have found that delivering this plus programming through groups has a direct impact on the social capital 
of participants, um, men and women, extending their social networks, creating or boosting social capital in these communities, and creating links and relationships that go beyond the groups and the program that allow these families and these couples, because this program has been delivered in couples, to sort of seek support from the rest of the community and improve their lives and improve their livelihoods through these networks. I mean, we're seeing a lot of different um, types of add-ons being added to cash. And of course, this is always sort of the uh, critique from social protection programmers. We don't want another plus component to add to our already overburdened social protection system. Um, but we do see a, a number of different types of add-ons occurring with sort of a gender focus. So one example of a cash plus program that was quite successful in reducing violence was a program in Bangladesh. It provided cash or food transfers to poor rural women with or without group-based behavior change communication. This BCC focused on nutrition, so it wasn't focused on violence, but it turned out that an impact evaluation that was led by IFRI showed that physical violence, physical IPV, reduced among women who received the combination of the cash plus BCC, even lasting four years post-program, but there are no sustained impacts from the cash alone. And the real mechanism kind of that they pinned down was not only through financial sort of improvements within the household, but was really through this women's empowerment pathway where meeting together in a group really increased social capital among the participants. Thank you. And it's a good point you raise that we do need to consider the potential burden or cost of these add-ons when social protection programs are being asked to do so much in contexts that are already quite difficult. Lusajo, from your research, what's the right balance here between cash and other complementary approaches? So in, in Tanzania, there was a pilot in two years in mainland Tanzania, in Bea, and also in Zanzibar, about uh, infant and young child nutrition, whereby parents and male caregivers were being trained when they came to collect the cash, they had a two-hour session on infant and young child nutrition. And uh, one among the findings was that males were very supportive. There was a man who said uh, his wife, had died in childbirth, and he was coming to learn how to take care of the child. Also, well, they were learning beyond nutrition. There were also some sessions on gender, on power, on violence. So I, I think this is one of a very good example of what can happen when there are complementary services. And after the pilot, now uh, a big impact evaluation is being conducted because the program is being rolled out throughout the country. So for me, that is one example of the balance between cash and complementary um, activities. Amber, can I come back to you? A lot of the evidence we have focuses on cash transfers. Can you give us a sense about what evidence is emerging around other forms of social protection and particularly public works programs where I have seen some indication that these can be a little bit riskier for women where they end up challenging gender norms about women working outside of the home or earning more than their husbands? 
Thanks. So you're absolutely right. There's now quite a bit of evidence on cash and social assistance, but many other forms of social protection might have interesting links to violence and are really less explored. So public works programs, as you mentioned, or labor market measures like unemployment insurance are really interesting ones as you have a bunch of different mechanisms at play. So on one hand, as you mentioned, you have shifts in household power due to changes in income or changes in social networks. If women are working outside the home, you also have these changes in exposure to violence. And what I mean by that is, for example, if a male partner is working or not working, there might be differences in violence just because there's more opportunity for abuse to occur or less opportunity um, because husbands and wives are spending more or less time together inside the home. So on the other hand, there are all these dynamics around violence outside of work. For example, violence at work in the workplace or public spaces on the commute to work, which might offset or compound changes at home. So workplace violence is really this huge research area in and of itself that really needs unpacking. Workplace violence might be affected by a number of different aspects like the quality of the job, the management structure, gender balance of your coworkers, and we really only have a handful of studies on public works and violence. So there's one study on India's Mnrega, which finds increases in IPV due to public works, but they're not actually able to show evidence of what might be driving this. They show that adverse effects are larger in areas where female employment is lower, hence this hypothesis around male reaction. But then there's another study also of the same program that was published this year that finds it actually acts as a safety net. So mediating adverse relationships between rainfall shocks and violence against women. So a bit of contradictory and underexplored evidence there. Finally, the only experimental evaluation I know of a public works program in a lone middle income setting is in Laos. This was a all-female cash-for-work program. This was led by the World Bank Gender Innovation Lab, and they actually find null effects, so no impacts on IPV and on violence outside the home, despite increases in women's income of about 40%. But overall, I think one challenge to keep in mind for any type of social protection is that if the program is not successfully changing mechanisms of impact, so in this case, improving the economic situation of women or of the household, or empowering her in different ways, then we wouldn't really expect downstream effects on violence. Thank you. I'm glad you mentioned both of those studies on M and Rega because, yeah, it's interesting that they do show contradictory effects and, and certainly underscores how complex an area this is. I think this is where, you know, the two worlds, the research and experience on violence against women and girls and social protection can sort of learn from each other. In the world of violence against women, we've been working on engaging men to prevent intimate partner violence for a long time. And we do know that working with men only and focusing on only men doesn't usually lead to much um, very good prevention or decrease in IPB. A gender-synchronized approach seems to be more efficient if you want in decreasing violence. And by gender-synchronized, we mean working both with men and women. The other thing is that we know that with couples, it seems to be quite successful. In some of the Ethiopia work we've been looking at, where the evidence of that complementary programming was sort of delivering couples, and it seems to have a good outcome in terms of reducing violence. And the last thing I wanted to say is that when we 
engagement and preventing or work on violence against women, we know that it's very difficult to engage men. They tend to attend less these kind of trainings. They're usually working different hours, um, so it's difficult. So it's important to highlight the benefits for them, for the community, for their family, but keeping them accountable towards women and keeping them accountable towards the issue of violence and, and what's their role in it and understanding how together we can change things. Just taking a big step back, social protection systems are, as we've discussed, generally designed to address poverty and vulnerability, to cushion people and families from shocks. Women's empowerment objectives, if they're included at all, would be secondary or supplementary in most, if not all, programs. But just as a thought experiment, I'd be interested to hear from all of you, if you were designing a feminist social protection system or a system that had women's empowerment as a primary objective, if it was the main thing that we expected that system to do or that program to do, what would it look like? So uh, for me, I think it would be woman-driven best that they suggest what would work for them, what manner of complementary services or programs would benefit the women. Also, I think challenging norms, especially women are from strong cultures or traditions where they feel like they are less feminine if they, you know, they also share power with men. So I think it's woman-driven uh, consider different cultures, just challenging gender norms would be, for me, an approach that would bring impact. I think something that is important to highlight is that the evidence suggests that unconditional cash transfer programs can lead to increase women's economic autonomy and empowerment without increasing their time burden. Because in social protection, of course, we can have conditional cash flows, and, and we have found that those can impose more burden on women's already busy lives. And given that conditions can penalize the most marginalized households, and that these households are usually disproportionately female-headed households, I think we need to consider that cash programs should avoid these hard conditions from the outset that could put more of a burden on women's and that wouldn't be thinking about their benefits or that wouldn't be putting them at the center of the program if that's our aim. I always say that designing good gender transformative social protection, however you want to define it, is really just about designing good social protection in the first place, since you can't sustainably reduce poverty without accounting for the needs of half the population. So I think really a system's view is how you want to think about things to make sustainable change. And I was actually part of this BIAC-B's gender working group that wrote a commentary on a vision for social protection post-COVID-19. So I'm going to repeat a few of the things that we emphasized. I think first you have to get the policy enablers right. So get the political buy-in, get the financial commitments to make national policies and systems that focus on gender, rights, dignity, and so forth. Second, you really have to get the operational and implementation right, especially for these less recognized forms of social protection that we know have huge gender implications like childcare services, coverage for informal workers, 
promoting these system linkages that we've been talking about today to health education protection systems. And third, you have to invest in the data, the research, and the learning that takes an explicit gender lens and informs these feedback loops to strengthen the policy and programming. And lastly, as Lisaji said, invest in women at all levels, so at the national level, policymakers, practitioners, and researchers, women have to be part of the solution. Thank you so much, Anna Maria, Lusaggio, and Amber for your time on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you for the invitation. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, John. Very nice to be here and to learn from Amber and Anna Marie. Thanks so much for highlighting this super important issue. And listen out for the next episode in this series. We'll be looking at the how-to, practical design and implementation questions for safeguarding and preventing gender-based violence along the social protection delivery chain. Before we go today, we like to end each episode with some quick wins. We ask a guest to bring in some recommendations for research, news or events that have sparked their interest and that we think you should know more about. Today, I'm speaking with Vessel Vandenberg, Mencare Officer at Equimundo, the Centre for Masculinities and Social Justice. Welcome, Vessel. Hi, Joe. It's great to join the conversation. And thank you very much for being here. For your first pick today, you've brought in a paper which is titled Applying a Masculinities Lens to the Gendered Impact of Safety Nets. This is a really interesting topic and perhaps a perspective we don't always hear. What stood out about this paper for you? Well, a couple of colleagues from Equimundo worked on this some years ago, and the major finding that I draw from the paper is the value of including men in social protection programs, both as beneficiaries, but also as supportive allies to women, children, and other family members. A key theoretical approach to this work that this paper takes is the application of a gender transformative lens. And that might be a new, innovative, or interesting approach to social protection programming, where gender transformation means actually working with relationships amongst genders towards a more equitable, fair, and just relationship amongst people. Many times, uh, social protection programs might be perceived as being gender blind, so not being specifically addressing one particular gender in their position. Therefore, a gender transformative approach really offers some benefits. Thank you. And I think a really interesting perspective when we think about the conversation we've just heard and the need to actively involve men in interventions that address gender-based violence in this instance, but also other issues that involve women. So what have you brought in next for your second pick? So I work as the Men Care Officer at Ekimunda, and we coordinate a campaign called the Men Care Global Fatherhood Campaign with our colleagues, Sonke Gender Justice, based in South Africa. And we've got a quite a strong focus on policy advocacy for policies that will move the needle on care and gender equality. And one of the important pillars that we recommend to government departments is the need to think in a more nuanced way about social protection programs. 
so the first set of suggestions that we have, and also based on the evidence from our research in the State of the World's Fathers reports, is to see the work with men as fathers as a really valuable entry point, particularly when there's this transition from being expectant or a new father. It's a major life change to have a child. And traditionally, they may take responsibility for providing financially for their families. Um, and from men care, our work is quite focused on extending this idea of provision towards a broader provision of also providing emotional and physical care. One example um, that has really good evidence of the value of this approach is a randomized controlled trial of an intervention that was implemented in Rwanda called Bande Berejo, which was done in conjunction with health facilities where a couple's intervention was implemented to get parents to talk about the shared care burden, but also the shared financial responsibilities in a household. And it's really encouraging to see that at the time of the intervention, six years ago, um, it showed really good outcomes in reducing both violence against women, but also violence against children, violence used by men, um, and improving attitudes on gender equality. And we were really, really encouraged recently in 2022 to see that those results were sustainable. Thank you. Yes, it's a really interesting study. And as with all of these links, we'll make sure to provide that link in the show notes. It is Great. also an interesting example of um, an intervention which focuses on couples, which Anna Maria highlighted as being particularly effective in our preceding mm. interview. It's great to think about quick wins as some of the steps we can take to achieve gender transformation, as you say, even though even if perhaps these processes aren't, aren't strictly quick. But in keeping with the segment, I'll ask you, what's your next quick win that you've got in mind? Well, I think it's important for the sector to consider when men and fathers should themselves be beneficiaries of social protection. Of course, as part of a gender transformative approach. We often position men only as instrumental towards uh, the reduction of violence against women or the benefits that they may hold for families. Uh, but increasingly, we are realizing that it's really important to see men and fathers in relationship to others as rights holders in their own right. And some of the research on the use of social protection benefits bears this out. In South Africa, we found in a few studies, actually, that when fathers receive child support grants, they actually used it for the essential needs of the children, like food or school fees, rather than uh, the so-called irresponsible expenses like alcohol or tobacco. And this was found in, in multiple studies, actually, and it's really encouraging. I think there is a societal expectation that women are assumed to be the primary caregivers, especially of children. But our work and others have increasingly shown that there's no genetic or biological barrier to men providing equally adequate care to children, of course, beyond pregnancy and breastfeeding but that men actually are as good caregivers as women are. And as we know that this association of women with care often places an extra burden of work on women, which may prevent them from accessing you know, economic opportunities or leisure time or manifesting their own development. 
And I think there is an increasing appetite for examining some of these really fundamental design questions in social protection, things like who do you target or what conditions are placed on programs or on beneficiary families, for example, and taking a a hard look at what that assumes about gender roles in the family. So this is an interesting example of that, I think. Thank you. And thank you very much for bringing these perspectives and these papers and this evidence into this discussion and for joining me on the Social Protection Podcast today. Thank you, Joe, And thank you for the opportunity. I think it's really important to include men in these conversations with all other genders. And I really look forward to keeping the conversation going. And thank you for joining me for the Social Protection Podcast. We are a production of socialprotection.org. Follow us on Twitter at SP underscore Gateway and find us on Facebook, YouTube and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast provider and leave a review. Back next month. See you then.